All right. Um, I, I am this morning continuing a series on the su- subject of discipleship. Good. I'm really pleased to hear that. <coughs> Probably helped. Was that, was that up there already? Ah. Oh. And there was me thinking that that was a sign of people having listened previously. Oh, well. Anyway, this morning we're looking at the subject of the family of disciples. We are going to look at those Bible references in just a minute, but let's have some pictures. Um, let's have the next slide and some pictures. Just to remind you, if you've um, been here the last few weeks, or if you've not, briefly to say, as we've looked at discipleship, we've looked at some things that are highlighted by these pictures that have been in previous week's presentations. Discipleship is about following Jesus, uh, taking hold of him and going where he's going. Discipleship is like being an apprentice. It's becoming like Jesus, and discipleship is made real in relationships with people who will train us. Uh, Jesus made it really clear that being a disciple is about leaving everything behind. And also, we looked last week at the fact that in discipleship, there's an expectation that all disciples of Christ will multiply the life that's in them. That's what that champagne fountain was about. As we enjoy spiritual life in Christ, that life, the nature of the life of Christ in us, is that it's an overflowing life. It's not a life that is naturally contained, but that spills out. And as we spend time with anyone who wants to hear about Jesus, as we humbly share God's perspective on life, we find that there is a multiplication, and we, the disciples of Christ, become disciple makers as well. That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you, Lynn. Good. Well, I'm quite excited about it anyway. So um, I don't know if it's that time of the year when, and what happens is in early October, we wonderfully welcome people from all across the world who come to study at the university and they come and they don't only bring with them the infections that they left home with, but all the ones that they gained on their long haul flights on the way here as well. And around about late October, um, there's all kinds of infections spread through the city. Um, We were up, well, I say I was up for about an hour in the night. Bev was up for about three hours in the night, um, which is why she's not here, because our Eleanor was sick. Um, I suspect that there is a bit of sickness around. So just before I go any further, and feeling the atmosphere at the moment, I'm just going to pray that God would uh, bless us with um, health and energy for all that he wants to do amongst us this morning. So Holy Spirit, thank you. Uh, that you're here with us. Thank you that you make effective amongst us the saving work that Jesus did at the cross. We remember uh, what it says in Isaiah, that by Jesus' injuries, we're healed. And we just pray for an outpouring of your life and your strength. Lord, we've already sung this morning that strength will rise as we wait upon you. Lord, we pray that as we read your word this morning, that it would be life to us. We pray that you give us all the energy that we need to listen to you and to receive from you this morning. Well, thank you for Sunday as for many of us a day of rest. We pray that 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 rest wouldn't just be an absence of activity, but in that rest, it would be like entering the promised land for us. It would be coming into what the Old Testament describes as that Sabbath rest in the land uh, that you promised coming in and receiving from you blessings and benefits that bring joy to our hearts and strength to our bodies. And we pray that in our time together, what's left of it here this morning, uh, just that you would uh, encourage us and build us up and give us what we need to serve you and to love you as we should. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Matthew chapter 12. 
and verse 46 says something quite remarkable. If you've read it before, maybe the remarkable nature of these verses will have somehow become familiar to you, but it is quite extraordinary in a culture that Jesus was living in where it was all really about family, that's where your security came from, and people were expected to care for one another. It says, it says that while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus understood that when people came to him as his disciples, that wasn't just a whole series of individual decisions, each person working out for themselves what it meant to follow Christ, uh, but that in coming together, he, they formed a new family, a spiritual family, which is of even more significance than the flesh and blood family. When we follow after Christ, we find that we're on a path what Jesus himself called the way, we're on the way, that is we're following Christ, we find that actually there's loads of other people on the path as well. And Jesus is really clear here that that's not just some kind of loose gathering, some kind of temporary cloud, it's not a crowd, it's not a flash mob for the moment, but it's family. The relationships that exist amongst that community of disciples are those of mother, brother and sister. So, having previously talked about this overflowing uh, fountain of life, the life that we have in Christ, here's another picture for you. That's a bit of a picture of what life is like in the Christian community, that is, in the church family. Uh, We all are overflowing with the life of Christ, or to pick up another picture, the fire of God, we spoke we sung this morning about the consuming fire that is the Holy Spirit at work in us. There's a spiritual output from each one of us. Now, that's what's going on in a coal fire. Each one of these coals is burning and it's imparting its heat to the ones around them. And that's helping to keep all the rest of them burning as well. If you take one of those coals off the fire and put it by itself on the grate, it won't be long before it goes cold. It's true, isn't it? If you take a cold coal and you put it in the middle of the fire, it won't be long before it picks up the heat and starts to burn itself and starts to impart heat to the others around it as well. And that's a bit of a picture of how uh, discipleship can operate within the church family. It's not just about some top-down trickle-down thing, but the Bible talks a lot about our relationships with one another. And for every one of us who knows Jesus and has the Holy Spirit living in us, there is an output, a spiritual output of life and of the heat of the power and love of God. And so when we get close to each other, we do each other good. That's why in Hebrews 10 it says that we shouldn't give up the habit of meeting together. Because when we come together, we all do each other good. Sometimes I might come to to make connection 
and enjoy friendship and fellowship with other Christians, I might come as the one who's feeling a bit cold in my love for God, but the fellowship warms me up. Other times I might come on fire for the Lord and be a blessing to others who've come in that day feeling themselves the coldness that I've felt on other days. So there's a bit of a picture. We're talking today about mutual uh, blessing of discipleship, not just a sort of top-down, trickle-down, hierarchical thing, but how we bless one another, how we live together as a family of disciples. So we're going to turn to the other passage, which is going to be our mainstay for this morning, Colossians chapter 3. And... We're going to read from the beginning of the chapter as far as verse 16. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your (coughs) earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So from these verses this morning, I'm just going to highlight five different areas of what it means for us to be a family of disciples. And I'm going to end up with five quite practical questions for us to reflect upon. The first thing, going back to verses 1 to 4, which link uh, with Matthew chapter uh, chapter 12, is that we're a family that's focused on Christ above. 
Jesus, it says here, is our life. He's our everything. I don't know if you, how you, easily you picked that up. But it talks about having been raised with Christ. It's the picture of the cross, of Easter, of Jesus in the tomb, and then Jesus miraculously being raised to life by the power of the Spirit. And Paul is saying here, as he says in many places, it's the same for you. You have died to your old way of life, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you, and so you're not living the kind of life that you lived anymore, you have a life that's in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is now our life. He is our everything. He's our focus. He's the one that makes sense of everything. And that's what gives us the community that we enjoy. That's where our community comes from. Seeking Christ brings us together. And when we're focused on Christ together, there's a family unity and peace. You know, there's a lot of trouble in churches that comes from the lack of a spiritual quest. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to see the dogs, the uh, like greyhound racing. And uh, when all of the dogs are in their traps, because they're all pumped up on testosterone, and that's what greyhound dogs are alike full of it and they're there in their cages and they're kind of yapping at each other and if they had the chance there'd be a fight amongst them because they're all tanked up but then the second that that little fluffy rabbit thing goes straight past them and the cage doors open they're all off uh, all going for the same thing and all of that sense of spikiness and mutual irritation is lost in the moment of having the same thing to go for. There's all kinds of problems that exist in church life because there's no real spiritual quest. People are not focused on Jesus and then naturally end up focusing on each other and all kinds of strife emerges. Same sort of thing is true in marriage, by the way. Uh, You start out in married life uh, happily gazing into each other's eyes uh, for as long as you can, But there comes a point when actually you don't only want to be gazing into each other's eyes. You want to be looking out together in the same direction, having a common purpose. And without that, uh, relationship will eventually wear pretty thin. When we focus on Jesus, we see each other rightly. Um, Confession time. Um, It's not a huge confession. You're not going to hound me out of the building for it. But um, sometimes in larger church gatherings, um, I can get quite depressed. The more people there are, the more I can look around and my eyes can go from one person to another and I can list off in my mind all the things that they're struggling with. I can see the people who talk about giving money generously but don't do it. I can see the people that are struggling with uh, long-term illness. I can see the people that have made catastrophic choices that have affected their lives really badly. I can see the flesh and blood reality of who we are as people. And you know what? That can get you down. Especially when you have a vision for the church to be you know, the hope of the world. But um, a few years ago, God really helped me. 
And it was exactly what it says here at the beginning of Colossians 3. Instead of setting our eyes on the earthly things, let's set our eyes on what's above. And practically, for me, that has meant that I've learned to lift my eyes from just the human reality of people's lives and instead note what God has done in each person's life. The same people who perhaps are hypocritical about money have got a great story of having seen God heal them of sickness. Or the person who's facing sickness is doing so with a supernatural courage. There are people who... uh, I could just kind of keep going. You can look around at the same group of people and with with spiritual eyes see that for everyone who's in Christ, there is a light shining of things that God has done and taken hold of each one of us and transformed us. And we are not the people that we were and we're not the people um, that we would be. (laughs) Christ has come in and intervened and changed where there was darkness in our lives and brought about light and life. And so I look around this morning and what I see is a whole bunch of people in whom I know that the light and the life of Christ is shining. It's a bright, shiny thing that we are together. And I don't know which way you see it. And so the first practical question I have out of this thing about our being a family of disciples means that our eyes are fixed on Christ And when we think of each other, we think of what Christ is doing in and amongst us. Our question will be, has my focus slipped from Christ so that I only see the church as flesh and blood? If I only see the church as flesh and blood, I'm not seeing the true reality. And I'm not going to help foster the kind of discipleship that we're all about. So that's the first thing. A family focused on Christ above. Secondly, a pure family. Wow, what a list of things in verses 5 to 10. I don't know how many verses we got in before you started to feel your own impurity keenly. Uh, Impurity, lust, greed, slander, all of these kinds of things. Because God himself is holy and we are his family, then He desires for us to be pure and clean. Justice matters to God. But he's concerned with more than just how we treat other people. He's also concerned with our hearts and our tongues. We could sum up what God's after in these verses as he wants us to have holy desires and to speak wholesome words which includes speaking the truth. So, holy desires and speaking the truth. Actually, those two things really come together. If you think about it, what is it that we are most tempted to lie about? It says here, don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self. What is it that we're most tempted to lie about? I'd like to suggest that the thing that we're most tempted to lie about is our dark inner desires, the things that are in us and which would bring us shame are the things that we are most tempted to lie about, to tell either something short of the whole truth or just something that's plainly untrue because we don't want that to be seen, we don't want it to be known. And so it's no great surprise that the world so often sees Christians as repressed hypocrites. 
St. Paul's Cathedral is shut. The protesters outside have been asked to move on. Apparently it costs the cathedral £16,000 a day in lost tourist income to have a camp of protesters outside. On the BBC News website, people have not been slow in accusing the cathedral of hypocrisy. Here's some of the comments. Are the cathedral authorities trying to curry the favour of the fat cats of the city or concerned about losing their disgusting entrance fees? Do Do you think they ought to read the New Testament again on the subject of dens of thieves? Someone else. There is no reason for St Paul's to be shut. It's purely a political move. St Paul's is a big business and fears losing money when it should be sheltering and helping those outside its doors. Jesus would be disgusted. Now, I, I don't know what you make of that current situation. I was in a pastor's meeting uh, on um, Wednesday and we are talking about what we're doing as churches across the city and one of the pastors said, you know what, I just wish I could get down to London and join that camp this week. So, I mean, I don't know where your politics lie. My point is really just the, the speed with which people in the world will look at the church and see hypocrisy. And actually, the root of that lies in what's going on inside us, where we know that there are things inside us that we just want to keep hidden. And so we carry on talking the talk of what moral standards ought to be, even whilst knowing that it's not there in our own lives. Hypocrisy, so it's about poor, hypocrisy is not just about poor moral standards, but it's about living with a mismatch between our private and our public worlds. So, I mean, some examples would be, you know, when we say that Jesus is all we need, but we can't bear being alone. Or if we're lovely and polite with some people, but actually really grumpy as soon as we feel we can get away with it, for example. Um, I am denied about whether to say this this morning, but I think I probably need to. Um, An obvious example is to do with the substantial proportion of Christian men and some women uh, who regularly view pornography. Um, I don't know quite what to believe about the statistics, but even if you take the statistics with a pinch of salt, it's an absolute given that it's just rampant in the Western church. Um, whereas once you had to go to a special bookshop or something, um, the access to pornography via the internet has taken away all of those external inhibitions and revealed the fact that a heck of a lot of people don't find any personal or internal inhibitions and go there regularly. Um, I'm not going to say a lot about that, except to say that uh, it needn't continue. Uh, There's a book that's been recommended from the front here a number of times. This book is called Every Man's Battle. If you've got a problem in this area, um, I just want to recommend you to get hold of this book and give it a read. But more than that, also, do you know what? Um, I can say with sort of 95% confidence that you will remain stuck in it until you tell someone else about it. Sorry. That's kind of how it goes. Things that are hidden thrive in a place of darkness but when the light shines it's amazing how quickly things change there's another book in this series um, 
that's called Every Woman's Battle. So if, as a woman, you're facing maybe not quite the same challenges, but questions about sexual purity, then those are some things that you can do. You can get hold of these books. They're helpful. Uh, And again, being open with someone about it, someone that you trust, that you can tell what's going on. I'm telling you, it will be the key to some change for you. Um, I'm not immune to temptation. For that reason, I have, uh, on the computers that I have access to, I have proactively chosen to install some software which sends to my brother a report of everything I do. I think he's probably quite bored of it. But you know what? It works. When I got a new phone, the main criterion I had for the new phone that I would get would be, can I have some internet monitoring software on it? You can't on an iPhone, therefore I wouldn't want an iPhone. Uh, You can on Android phones, and that's why I have one. Other than the fact that it's quite cool to have an Android phone. But, you know, you understand what I mean. Um, And I just think, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? It seems fairly straightforward to me that living in the light keeps us clean. And um, it was a great day when I um, realized that my brother would be a real help to me in that. So anyway, I could say more, but here's my practical question. Oh, no, there's one more thing I just felt, as I was getting ready this morning, to say with this. See, one of the reasons I think sometimes our sexuality goes awry. It's to do with what we believe. I think sometimes some of us believe that somehow our sexuality is part of a kind of animal nature in us. And so there's all of it exists kind of at that level and then there's a spiritual bit. And the problem with thinking about our lives in that way is we set ourselves up to assume that those different aspects of who we are will forever be at war with each other. Does that make sense? You don't have to nod too vigorously. It's okay. If it makes sense, that's fine. Um, Actually, think about Adam before the fall, or more especially, think about the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully human, and that means that he had a sexual nature. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about his sexual nature, um, but we know that it's there, and yet it's not, it doesn't make any sense for us to think of Jesus having some kind of animal nature that was warring against the rest of him. You know, the way that God created us to be was a unity in which all that we are and all that we feel is in harmony with his will, including our sexuality. It's not that our sexuality is something that is intrinsically problematic that can be best dealt with by being um, sort, of tried to, sort of pushed out of existence. There's something better that the Bible speaks of, which is a pure sexuality. <coughs> and if that seems an impossibility, well, just start to let the light shine and you'll be amazed what God will do. The practical question I have for you, just to try to bring this point home... And it's not just about sexuality, but about other things as well. And the question about our personal and private worlds. My question is, um, would, would I be happy for someone to search my home and my computer? Would I be happy for someone to search my home 
and my computer. A little question. If not, there's presumably something lurking. It's gone quiet, hasn't it? The next thing, verse 11, uh, let's talk and think about an open community. Verse 11 says, here, that is, in this family of disciples, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That picture is just supposed to mean, look, we're a family, but there's room for people to be welcomed in. You know, this statement in verse 11 is just massive. It's massive for Paul to say, there is no Greek or Jew. The recent history of interactions between Greeks and Jews was when the Greeks were the imperial power over the land of Israel. And whilst that was the case, they did their best to rub out Judaism. They did things like requiring Jews to eat pork, or if they wouldn't do it, they'd flay them alive. That sort of thing. They went into the temple and they ripped open the curtains to the Holy of Holies and they set up a statue which was profane and blasphemous uh, before the Lord of Israel. So for Jews, they've been brought up on this need to establish their Jewish identity and to keep it solid and keep it sound and remember that their grandparents and great-grandparents had suffered torture and imprisonment and death for the sake of maintaining a distinct Jewish identity. And here Paul says there is no Greek or Jew. In Christ, do you know what? All of that just becomes secondary and of little importance compared to the overwhelming significance of being in Christ. Scythians were... um, horse-riding, nomadic kind of people from what's now northern Iran and going up into Kazakhstan. Uh, The people who uh, later um, produced Genghis Khan and those kind of hordes that swept down from the steppes of Central Asia into Europe. Um, People who were on the margins of Roman, uh, Roman society and people who were feared. People who were on the margins of society and feared you know what? They're welcome too. I wonder who comes to mind for you when we think of people on the margins of society and people who were feared. Possibly Islamic extremists, maybe. Maybe sex offenders. Um, They're welcome to follow Jesus. And on following Jesus... All are in Christ, and Christ is in all. Barbarians. The the Greeks called the barbarians barbarians because it was a little joke that they couldn't speak proper language, i.e. Greek, and just went ba, 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 ba. Their language was just nonsense because they didn't speak. They weren't civilized. That's why they were called barbarians. And these were people that were basically seen as really stupid and ignorant. I wonder who you think of as stupid and ignorant. (laughs) Um, I need to go a little bit carefully here, don't I? (laughs) Um, But I think the truth is that all of us at times in our hearts are tempted to look down on people 
And, you know, perhaps people that have less social skills than us, we're not sure if we really want them in our church group. Um, maybe people who are suffering at the moment with mental health issues, we think, do we really want them in our group? When I was growing up, we had two kinds of Christmas. Uh, one Christmas was the Christmas with the family, when we'd invite people, uh, uh, the odd neighbour and so on, into our home. And it was our family, and, and we had people that fitted in okay, that came in and joined us for Christmas dinner, sometimes, not every year, but um, it was basically a family thing anyway. We had some other Christmas days when, with my brother and my parents, we went to the uh, equivalent in the town that I grew up in, in Cheltenham, of what we have here as the gatehouse, um, a place where Christmas lunch was being provided uh, for the homeless. And we'd spend our Christmas morning peeling umpteen potatoes, um, actually being shouted at by the rather controlling woman in the kitchen, and sitting down with men who were drunk and should have washed more than they had, and who rambled at us and could be quite angry as well. It's another kind of Christmas morning. Um, I wonder which of those is more your vision of church life. I know which kind of church I'd rather be part of. I'd rather be part of a church that makes room for all kinds of people and takes the mess and the complication that goes along with it. Actually, in church life, we get to have a mixture of the two, don't we? We get to retreat into our groups of friends, into our some of the meetings of our missional communities where we kind of huddle together and check each other okay. Um, Probably my view on this was forged some years ago. Some of you will have read the book The Cross and the Switchblade, which tells of the story of the conversion of a a gang member called Nicky Cruz. Nicky Cruz went on to do lots of work with gang members uh, in the States and wrote another book called Run, Baby, Run, which was um, his own story as it followed on. In that, there's this little bit where he talks about a gang member who had come to Christ and he bounced up to him excitedly one week and said, Nicky, Nicky, I've had a great week. I've only killed one person this week. <laughs> and uh, something about that landed with me. I don't know how that sounds to you. I don't know how you feel about having a murderer in your church group. Um, Being a family of disciples means that we want to support people who are moving forward with Christ. And it's not just about how far they've got on. Have they learnt to manage their personal hygiene yet? Have they learnt you know, to speak about the right kinds of things in the right kind of places yet? Have they stopped being a criminal yet? Yet, yet. It's, if we support people as people, we'll stand with them where they're at. And our focus is just on helping each other to move forward. You know what? It makes life really complicated. And, and perhaps a little bit harder for us. But for us to be a family of disciples is not about being a comfortable family. And so my practical question here is, is my group within the church, is my group really open to real people, or have we somehow put the shutters up to all kinds of sorts of people that we perhaps don't really want? Wow, you wouldn't have thought all this was in just a few verses, would you? The next few verses talk about us being a real family. Um, That's the kind of thing that goes on in a real family. Brothers and sisters do annoy each other. Is that right? 
Yeah? There are a few people that can annoy you half as well as your, as your siblings. They've kind of got a talent for it and feel utter permission to do so. That's family for you. Earlier in this book, Paul has already stated that Christ has won for us a cosmic peace. Uh, Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 say, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul has stated the fact that in Christ there is peace. All things have been reconciled. And here he explains what that ought to mean for brothers and sisters in Christ who might sometimes annoy each other. He writes about compassion, which is thinking about how each other feel, feeling for each other. Kindness and gentleness. Uh, These words speak of using the least abrasive means possible. Um, if, you're, if you have a baby that needs its face wiping, uh, it might be that a scourer would be the most effective way of getting stuck on food off their face. It's not a kind or gentle way. Um, you find the least abrasive means that will work to achieve the task. That's kindness and gentleness. Humility means thinking of others as better than yourself. Patience is about being willing to wait. It's amazing how much strife is caused between people by a simple unwillingness to wait. If we waited for each other just a little bit longer, we'd find that there was a lot more peace. So these verses speak of thinking of and feeling for each other, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Actually, Keith Elmit is going to be speaking next week about the whole thing of loving one another and serving one another. I'd just like to focus in, therefore, on this little phrase, forgive. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Um, forgiveness is a widespread need. Forgiving doesn't mean pretending that the person never did anything wrong. But it does mean that you no longer wish for anything bad to happen to them because of it. It doesn't mean sweeping it under the carpet and pretending it never took place. But it does mean that all of that desire for vengeance, for them to be shown up for what they are and suffer the consequences of their misdemeanour and that that desire has been consciously put to one side. And you know when you've done that, because you can think of the person that has wronged you, and you can pray with your whole heart that they would be blessed, that they would enjoy life, that, that things would go well for them. If there's someone for whom you can't pray like that, then you probably need to forgive them. And... Uh, So my fourth question is, is there anyone you need to forgive? Because we're a real family, there will be people that we need to forgive from time to time. Do you have a backlog of people to forgive, or is your account clear? Lastly then, verse 16, um, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Actually, the punctuation of this verse leaves it a little bit unclear quite how the teaching and admonishing and the singing all works together. You could read it in one way, which would imply that you admonish each other by singing. You are a toe rag, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, the, just it's a tumbling out of verses in the Greek with, without punctuation in, and it's unclear whether it's like that or whether it's, you know, do teach and admonish one another and do sing as well. So I won't dwell on that unclear thing, but let's look together at what's clear. What's clear is that Paul sees the church getting to grips with the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let the word of Christ get into you as you teach and admonish one another. Going back again to chapter 1, Paul, first of all, uses these words admonishing and teaching and wisdom in the context of his apostolic call. Chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul says, we proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy which is so powerfully at work in me. So Paul is travelling around, his apostolic task, what he knows he's called to do as an apostle and a herald and a teacher is tell people about Jesus and work it into their lives so that it's transforming. And here we have in chapter 3 his expectation that this task is now passed on to the church. What once the apostle coming in, uh, for us maybe the more relevant thing is you know, teachers of the Bible and, and pastors and people coming and they're doing stuff to us and for us. But Paul says, you know what, in the church that you're called to be, do it together. Teach one another. Admonish one another. The word admonish here means put things in each other's minds. Give each other things to think about. Put things in each other's minds. Shape each other's thinking. Now, we can spend a long time waiting for a a spiritual parent to come along and sort us out. We can think to ourselves, oh, if only someone like the Apostle Paul came along and took hold of me and taught me some stuff, then I would get sorted out. But one of the things he would say to you were he to come is, why haven't you been getting on with it with each other in the meantime? We're meant to teach and admonish one another. There's lots of one another's, aren't there, in the New Testament. Romans 15, instruct one another. Ephesians 5, submit to one another. Hebrews 10, spur one another on. James 5, confess your sins to each other. And my last question will be just a practical one. With whom do I do this admonishing one another thing? With whom do I ever sit down and allow the word of Christ to get in to my life, to apply the word together. With whom do I sit down, look at the word of God, and talk together about whether it's really getting in to the way that I live, changing my thinking, affecting my behavior? Because it's one thing to sit and read the Bible for ourselves, it's another thing to hear the word of God preached, but is it actually getting in? To have a little check, and with someone as a friend of yours, to have permission to say, I think I need to draw your attention to the fact that you're a hypocrite (laughs) in this area. 
Um, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, now, for many of us, that can take place within the missional communities that we're part of here in the church. If you're part of another church, I trust that there'll be some contexts like that. Personally, I've got two at the moment. I'm quite pleased about this. Um, I'm meeting with Andrew Clark and Simon Jackman, who are both up here on the stage earlier, um, in what we're grandly calling a life transformation group, because that's a bit of jargon that someone else came up with, and it gave us a bit of a starter. And it, we're doing something that's a little bit like, for those of you that, that know of it, Wesley's old uh, bands, where you'd sit down and basically say, so what have you done wrong since the last time we met? Uh, let's talk about that, let's pray about that. And there's a means of grace for just working the life of God into what we're doing. The other one that I'm in, I've just recently formed a group with a bunch of leaders of churches from across the UK. It's facilitated by a guy from Sheffield called Paul McConaughey. Alec Griffiths is in it, for those of you that know him, who leads Community Church Derby. Nick Harding from Frontline in Liverpool and and a few others. And we are looking at these questions together um, on a regular basis. If you can read all of those there, but... Things to do with our character in our upward relationship, that is with God. Inward relationships, that's with other Christians in the church. Outward relationships with the world. And we're asking ourselves those questions. And each time we meet, we're scanning over those lists. When I say meet, we're doing it by Skype, because we're all from different parts of the country. But we're having a Skype conversation for an hour or so, a bit longer, and saying, which of these things is the Holy Spirit highlighting to me is an issue to talk through today? And you know what, there's always something, because there's a constant need to, to work things into us. Um, I'm really pleased in the last few years there's a, a group that's formed in the church called Esther Babes, um, because it's enabling um, mothers with young children to get together and talk about the real issues that uh, come up in your character and the challenges that are formed. Then there's all kinds of ways in which we need to uh, look, get together teach and admonish one another. So there we are. On the next slide, all of my questions shall appear. Questions to ponder. Has my focus slipped from Christ so I see the church only as flesh and blood? Would I be happy for someone to search my home and my computer? Is my church group really open to real people? Uh, Is there anyone I need to forgive? And with whom do I admonish one another? You know, I did this a little bit last week. I gave a whole list of questions to go away with. And as I prepared for this morning, I thought, well, it may be that people are still mulling over last week's questions. Um, So I thought it's quite good that we're not greatly pushed for time at the moment. And there's therefore time for us now just to sit and for a moment to ponder. It may be that there are other things that have been shared in recent weeks or that have come up from your own reading of the scripture where actually God's highlighted certain things for you. What we're not about doing this morning is a kind of complete overhaul of our character so that by the time we've finished with coffee, we've been made perfect. You know, the task of growing as a Christian, it's a lot more like gardening. Jesus spoke of himself as a vine and us as the branches, and the branches are pruned and grow and pruned and grow. And it's not about all being, you know, um, dealt with all in one moment. And I just like, I'm going to pray and just ask that the Holy Spirit would highlight what particular thing he would like us each to pay attention to this morning. For some of those things, the practical response will be, I've got to go and talk to someone. I've got to go and do something. 
For others, the practical response will actually be you've got to spend some time repenting um, and dealing with God um, in the quietness of your own heart. So, um, James, are you able to come and help us by giving us a little bit of uh, music so that we're not all just hearing each other as we pray, but then a bit more freedom then to pray as we, we know that we need to. Thank you. Others might want to join James here in the band. It's up to you. Um, let's pray, and then we'll have a few minutes to, to ponder and to be quiet together. Lord Jesus, we remember that discipleship is so not about us. It's all about you. It's about loving you, following you, being changed into your likeness. It's done in your power. It's done at your direction. And you are the one that will bring it to completion so that when you appear, we also will appear with you in glory. Not because of what we've done, but because of your work in us. And so we ask Jesus, that you would once more send the Holy Spirit to us to do your work in our lives. Thank you that you're just so gracious. You're so gentle and kind and patient with us. And as earlier in the meeting, we were just starting to open up our hearts to you at the leading of the Holy Spirit. God, would you help us now to open up our hearts further, that there will be no area that is closed to you, no issue that is off limits for you. Just as we brought some of our struggles to the cross and said, there's this, Lord, there's this. I want to offer it to you, surrender it to you. Lord, would you help us to continue that now? Holy Spirit, would you come and bring order to our thoughts? If our thoughts are racing off in 15 different directions, would you come and calm us and speak to us and show us what it is that you want to do with us this morning? Thank you that you treat us well. Thank you that you know our frailty and our fickleness. And yet, you come and you transform us. Lord, would you come and do that afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.